Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and just a little bit of entertainment. How are you doing? I am still on a high from being back on the microphone at Ironman UK in Bolton and I'm excited to head back to the UK this week for Ironman 70.3 Staffordshire on Sunday. It really was so good to be back. I missed it so much and really only realised how much I missed it as we started building up to race day on site in Bolton. There were lots of COVID protocols in place as part of the Ironman global return to racing guidelines, but that didn't stop us from having a great race day. There's no doubt Ironman UK was a tough day for the athletes, battling the course, the distance and Mother Nature, who battered the athletes with torrential rain for a large part of the day. On the magic carpet, there were no sweaty hugs and high fives this year, but that didn't take away from the experience of crossing that finish line to the words, you are an Ironman. It simply was delightful to be back. Congratulations to all finishers from those who did their first event to those chasing personal bests, podiums and Kona slots. To those who didn't make it to the magic carpet, I hope you will return next year to tackle the course and beat it along with the elements. Special shout out to race champions Joe Skipper and Katrina Matthews. They have both been guests on the show. You can check out their stories in sport on our previous episodes and find out what motivates them to be the best athletes they can be in chasing their passion for sport. Closer to home, it was the Hardman race in Waterville that set hearts racing last weekend with a much anticipated return to racing for lots of Irish athletes. Chris Minturn and Becky Woods taking the top step of the podium on the day. The Triathlon Ireland race calendar is filling up with races taking place over the coming weeks and months. It is super to see a return to racing here in Ireland and long may it continue. I may even have to pick a race or two myself to take part in. With all my training over the past few months, my appetite for racing has certainly been ignited. So hashtag watch this space. This Sunday sees the much anticipated tri-battle between Jan Frodino and Lionel Sanders. Will you be tuning in? Who do you think will win this fight to the finish line? One thing is for sure, it will be an epic battle and one that will be talked about for quite a while after. In this week's episode of the podcast, I chatted with Porik Mary from Mayo, a name synonymous with cycling not only in Mayo and Ireland, but further afield. Porik lives, breathes and embraces cycling like no other person I have ever met. From racing and race directing, bikepacking to coaching, committees and volunteering, he's done it all and is one of the most committed advocates and ambassadors for the sport of cycling that you will ever come across. So much so, you rarely see Porik without a bike of some sort attached whilst he is telling you about the latest plan, challenge or initiative he is involved with. As a youngster, his bike was his mode of transport to get to school and to his swimming lessons. The thrill of adventure and opportunity for fun started him on a journey for life that would see him start bike racing at the tender age of 14 in 1987 when Stephen Roach won the Tour de France. A high performer in sport across boxing, running and rugby, it was down the cycling path where Porig really followed his passion for sport, both as an athlete and coach. He raced the Ross in Ireland 12 times within a 30-year period, raced abroad for a period of time, holds multiple race titles and coaching accolades, is a race director for triathlon and cycling events and has recently completed an off-road Everesting challenge on the side of Croke Patrick with some fellow cycling enthusiasts in Mayo. In addition to this, he won Gale Force in 2010 and was the All-Ireland Adventure Race Champion in 2011. The list of accolades and achievements are vast and diverse. His versatility as an athlete evident in his success in sport. In some ways, the bigger and more obscure the challenge, the greater the excitement for Porig. However, in 2014, he faced his biggest challenge of them all, a fight for life. Thankfully, he has come out the other side of this challenge and continues to inspire, encourage and motivate the people around him and beyond, young and old, to enjoy the lifelong skill of cycling and all its joys and jubilations. Enjoy the show. This is a good one. Porik Mary, good afternoon and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks for inviting me along. Uh, great to be here. You are very welcome. Now, you have so much cycling experience under your belt. It's hard to know where to start with you. But the very first thing I'm going to ask you about is the fact that you did a big cycle today and yesterday from Mayo down to Killaloo and back in support of a friend who's trying to cycle from Mayo to Cove. Yeah, we have we set up a little group called uh, Get Me Hall to Cove. Uh, so it's kind of funny, really. It was a bit of a, uh, we're taking the mickey a little bit, but it's quite, it was 
he wanted to get down to Cove. There's nearly 200k from Westport, so we decided, sure, shall we go down a bit of the way with him? So we decided to go as far as Killaloo, and uh, we brought our we brought our luggage with us. So we have those big, I wouldn't call them a saddle bags, but they're the fish underneath the saddle. They're like a big tube and they take a couple of litres of clothes. So we brought that down, brought and uh, stayed over in Killaloo and enjoyed the ambience around the hotel. Very lovely spot, really. Wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have never stayed there before, but I really enjoyed it. Was that considered being out-out now that you went to Killaloo? You're not just out of the pub, you're gone out-out because you cycled 180k to go out. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's, yeah you could call it that, you could call it that. Different way, different out of it was, it was cool, it was really cool to do. <laughs> Parik, I really don't know where to start with you with regards to chatting about your background in sport. And rather than try and tell the listeners what I know, it's probably better that you maybe start from the start as to how you got into cycling, which would have been your main sport for many, many years. Somebody told me you used to cycle messing as a child on a on a bike and you used to cycle to Clare Morris which was 22 kilometers away to go swimming and that's how you got started on a high that's nelly got, yeah yeah well I know a proper bike when I was growing up uh, as in races or anything like that I started off at a little small uh, it was like a rally chopper to call it a tomahawk so I started off at that at the age of five and moved on to all various types of high nellies but a friend of mine was a uh, he wasn't a good runner, but he liked, he was actually quite a strong cyclist and he was big into swimming. And uh, in fairness, I like to swim as well. So rather than annoy our parents to bring us over and back, we used to cycle over. I used to cycle over behind him. He had a racing bike. So I used to sit him behind him, carry our, our gear uh, into the swimming pool and come back out. And we used to have maybe, at the time, it was pounds. And I might have a pound to spend. So we used to always kind of work out what was the best way but how much food could you get for a pound? So we, all, we worked out custard creams is probably, we get three packs of custard creams at the time for a pound. So that's what we used to do. We'd eat it, we'd munch them, and then we'd, we'd, we'd blast off home. So we were, I, I did ask for a couple of years, but it wasn't done for competition or anything like that. But swimming and and uh, cycling kind of, put both them, they tailored each other. You're showing your age by telling us that you could get three packs of custard creams for a pound. Exactly, yeah. That was back in the 80s now, I'm afraid. Uh, that was mid-80s, I'd say. <laughs> and how did you go from having the crack and the fun cycling over and back to Clare Morris um, to go swimming to end up actually racing in cycling and getting heavily involved in the sport of cycling, not just locally in, in Mayo, but actually on a national, international level? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um like we came across, actually, one of those cyclists going over to Clamaris on the way home, we came across a, a local race in Hollymount. It was to do with the, uh, their, the Hollymount 10K run race. But they had a race on prior to that, a recycle race. And we seen the cyclists coming around. We said, geez, look at the buzz of this. Uh, lead cars, horns, so an MC roaring. And like, I'd never seen anything like that before. I said, geez, this is class. I didn't know anybody in it, but... Uh, I was saying to myself and, and my friend James, I says, do you know what I'm get a hold of, get into that for next year? So we watched the race, went home, made a bit of contacts around who's, who's involved in cycling, who's involved with the Hollymont Cycling Club. That was the only cycling club that we knew of at the time. And uh, lo and behold, we got a hold of Sean Stagg. My first spin out with him, um, it, was, it was in the middle of, I'd say, December. And I went out with a pair of shorts and uh, just a woolly jersey. There was woolly jerseys that wasn't even Lycra. It was woolly jersey back then. Now for a spin with him, he couldn't believe it. Like, it was, I cycled out, it was probably just, the ground was frosty and it was really cold. So I would say it's probably, oh, probably somewhere between minus one and three degrees at best. So no arm warmers, no leg warmers, no gloves. Just popped it out with him. And he says, come here, you can't go cycling like that. So he tutored me in fairness. And so we used to go for spins and after one thing led to another by the uh, by the following year, that was my first proper race was actually that that Hollymount race. So it took me a year to get into it, basically. What age were you then, Park? Uh, I would have been 14, around 14 I started. Uh, but I was, I was involved in a lot of sports. Like it wasn't just uh, cycling. I was hugely involved with, with uh, boxing at the time. And uh, I did a lot of rugby as well and track and field, cross country, running. Did you go to school at all? Did you? Uh, I used to turn up for school. School was rest time. (laughs) 
But uh, yeah, I was I seen all that then. I, I, like back then, like there was no such thing as a free ride. Like so, I used to work in the evenings. I was in part time jobs either in the evenings or on a Saturday. That and that was to kind of help job pay the little bits and pieces of bills. So they're only, they're only, I was only getting small monies, but it was uh, it definitely helped to pay for for some of the stuff. No such thing as getting mammy or daddy buying me a bike. That it all that wasn't that wasn't the case when I was growing up. You had to if you wanted a bike, you had to save up your own way, and uh, that's how we got into it. I, he, he, I learned to appreciate the value of everything very early, very young. You've mentioned loads of other sports that you were involved with. How did cycling become the number one sport for you then? Um, I loved adventure. Uh, I loved going down back roads. Like when I was a kid, every back road within, I'd say, a 10-mile radius. And I mean as a kid from my first adventure was at five. My mother and father nearly lost their lives when I took off at five. It was gone for hours. And uh, like I'm just looking at my, my wee fellow now. He's seven. Like if he was gone for five minutes, I'd lose my life. But I was gone for hours, going off exploring roads and seeing where this road went, where that road went, going through floods. I was mad into all sorts of that kind of stuff. Just I don't know where that came from because my father never cycled, neither did my mother. It's in me. It's just in, I want to go exploring, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm still at that to this day. It could be, it could be a hike. It could be getting on the gravel bike and just see where an old bog road will bring you up, and then you might have to hike the bike across a hill or across a mountain. That that wouldn't put me off. So I love that kind of stuff. And you're still doing loads of it. Still doing loads of it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're still on the journey from the racing period. So you did 12 of the Ross events over three decades. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, when I look back at it, um, at the time, I'd, 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 if, you're, if you're racing, you're in a bubble. I'd be straight up and honest here. Like for 30 years, I was in a bubble of racing. Uh, you, you race during the summer or from spring to summer, and then you train during the winter. And uh, I'll be straight up on honest. I was definitely in a bubble. My whole social life and all that was was revolving around cycling. And um, I suppose when I look back, I I, I I definitely put too much emphasis and on my cycling and my friends in cycling, and didn't I probably neglected other parts of my life. But that that was just the way it was. That's what I wanted to do, and that's what I was doing, and I enjoyed it. The, the Ross, the Ross was a big part of that. Like my first Ross was in um, 1993, and I had a bad crash on the eighth stage in that. It was in a collar for quite a while after it. And then my next Ross was 96, and then, then I did another one again in uh, 98, 99. Then I went off to Australia, gallivanting for a few years. So it was I didn't go back to the Ross again until uh, 2003, and then I did 2003 straight to 2008. Went away from it again. Went off adventure racing. Then that that I that was when the adventure racing started, and I got completely captivated by the. It really fitted my job, my type of demeanor, my type of I suppose exploration and going out finding different mountains, different hills. So I did that then again from two thousand eight until kind of twenty thirteen. But I went back to the Ross in twenty twelve. Uh, we were very lucky there at Gary Higgins of Centra. Uh, there in Laban, and he's another. He's another shop in uh, in Scrone. He supported us for three years, and uh, another guy called Damien Foley there with Erden Recyclers. So that, you know, once we had some monies there to put a team together, like we got a lot of. I suppose we were getting guys to do the Ross that really would have been probably past their sell by date per se, but they never actually got to do the Ross. So we put in huge training plans over winters and. Yeah, we we that that got us through till uh, 2014. So that's how that's how the whole Ross thing kind of that's how that worked out. But it wasn't continuous. I wasn't always in the in the Ross bubble. It's just I come in, come out because the Ross is very taxing. Like if you're committing to the Ross, you're leaving everything else to one side. So um, and for the listeners, Park, who are outside of Ireland who wouldn't know what the Ross is, will you just explain what it is? Yeah, well, the Ross is it's an international cycle race. It's Ireland's only international cycle race at the time. Uh, when I started off, the Ross was nine days. Average stage distance would be somewhere around the one forty to up to up to one eighty and one ninety k's. And uh, latter years, then it became it became much called a UCI recognised race, and that means they brought in you know, higher grade pro teams. And uh, so, definitely from I found from 
from 2008 upwards, the standard of the Ross really, really, uh, really increased. Whereas prior to that, it was mostly Irish amateurs, the English amateur teams, and a few European amateur teams. But that all changed in 2008 onwards. So it definitely became more pro. And then Ampus took it over, and that gave it a, a very much a pro feel. So the, the gantries at the start and at the finish, so getting created around the town. So there was male shots done here, there, and everywhere. Like it, re- it really got a higher profile. Uh, it's just a pity, like it hasn't been on for the last three years because of one year had no sponsors, and the last two years has been to do with COVID. So I hope it comes back because, like, cycling needs a marquee event. And as I was growing up, the Ross was the marquee event. So there was no other race that came anywhere close to it. There was no other race that got, got anywhere near amount of coverage as well as the Ross. So I, I really hope it comes back for, I suppose, for the next generation of Irish cyclists coming through. They need to have something to aspire to. And it's also, I suppose, a springboard as well, Porik, for those athletes or those cyclists who are at a certain level but need to jump up to hit the continental level to make it to a pro team. So, you know, doing the Ross on your own doorstep was a good springboard as well for future potential professional careers. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, that never bothered me, but uh, if I see for the likes of David O'Loughlin, like, uh, oh, he was he was well recognised around, around the Irish circuit, but the minute he hit the Ross, he just seemed to jump five levels in his first Ross and that brought you know, his, his, his ability to everybody's attention. This guy's, this guy's got serious talent and we had, we had to talk about that earlier on in the, in the year about how you know, David's career. So uh, yeah, you need the Ross, you need events like that. Otherwise you're not, your measurement tool is not there. You have no measurement, you have no way of saying, well, how good are you? It's, it's not good enough to be winning a local race. You have to, you, know, you have to pit yourself against say internationals, and those internationals generally have ridden it away a higher level. So but I think it's good. It's a good measuring stick. Now, you are a postman, but you also are a coach with Cycling Ireland. You're the chairperson of Western Lake Cycling Club. You're the PRO for Connacht Cycling. Like your whole life really revolves around cycling. What does a typical day look like with the commitments that you have to your nine to five Monday to Friday job. You are on your bike doing the post around the flying postman, as we as we call you. Your commitment to the different cycling organisations that you're involved with, and then the coaching that you do as well. And I know that you worked as um, a youth development officer as well, and head of coaching for a number of years with Cycling Ireland. So you've invested a huge amount back into the sport that's brought you so much fun and joy and adventure over the years. I suppose yeah, I like I like to see developments. I like to see things move on and. Uh... I suppose my, my years working for Cycling Ireland from 2001 to 2005, like it gave me a grasp of what it was like to work with volunteers. And uh, like I was working with volunteers, not just in Mayo, it was everywhere, all over the country. And then that transpired where I was going, going abroad with teams and all of that. So I got to see a whole lot of stuff. And back then, I wasn't sure of what to make of the whole thing. I didn't really know. And because um, I was thrown in, my, my kind of remit was, increased youth numbers that was basically it uh, no one really know, knew how to do it and I was thrown in at the deep end get, get it done it just transpired at the time that members in Cycling Ireland that it was was never at any job that was the lowest in this whole I suppose the, since it was set up the, the membership was at an all it was under 2,000 members for the whole country that wasn't 2,000 youths now that was 2,000 for the whole country and uh, it was a case of working with clubs, working with individuals, setting up a few youth camps. At the time, everything was road racing. That was the pinnacle. You, know, you had to get them into cycling the bikes. It also coincided with the Celtic Tiger, Tiger era where um, people didn't want to cycle. People wanted the luxuries, you know, that they were making big money. I don't know where the money went to, but they were making big money, you know, buying houses, buying cars, you know, getting takeaways. Ireland's whole infrastructure back then changed uh, where people were using bikes one time to commute. Like that was, that was frowned upon. And uh, so I, I, I found it, I found it a really hard struggle to get people cycling. And uh, we did, we, we had a lot of initiatives. We started off with the cycling safety and skills program. We, we, we ran that through Barbara Connolly and we had different pods all around the country. That was very successful. And that got at least it got kids back on bikes in the school in the school environment in the safe environment. But the way I look at kind of uh, as uh, a development officer's role it was recruit, 
develop and then you have to retain. Uh, so we got them in. We did loads of different promotions. We used the Ross. We used huge big races. And we brought in the kind of the leading lights at the time, Davy O'Loughlin and uh, Mark Scanlon. They came about. They went into schools. They were talking about cycling, about their careers and where they were able to go. And that, that was huge for us. And uh, lo and behold, the numbers started to increase. But it was mostly down to a, it was only in pockets. There was a few key clubs. And those key clubs had, uh, I suppose, they had good coaches. And they brought them they brought them through. And then if you look at it now, like I see the way, say, French and Belgian and uh, Dutch cycling has been, I suppose, developed. That has all changed. Like it's all about doing a whole load of disciplines. So slight across. Uh, doing even stunt riding, mountain biking, enduro type riding, like and road, but the road is left a bit later. Like at the time, we felt we needed to get the underage racing at a younger age, and I look back that I think that has been a mistake. Some of them came through, but I'd say equally, an awful lot more left the sport. There was too much peer pressure for them to get results and got results young early on. It felt like they were going to be uh, the next Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach, which John never transpired. So that was a good learning curve. Uh, I suppose, yeah, that was it from the, the youth development role. Like, and you asked about, like, what's my, my standard day? My standard day is I'm up every morning at half four and I'll probably go to bed at about half ten. And in that day, literally anything can happen. I, I deal a lot with emails, a lot with WhatsApp, talk to, to various kind of people that are going to get, get things done. And uh, yeah, every day is completely different, but it, it involves a lot of time around, around cycling. I'll be straight up and honest, you be it either cycling or talking about cycling or talking about developments in cycling or what can you do Come up with events. I'm all the time coming up with different mad ideas. So uh, I'm lucky enough. I don't need a lot of sleep. But when I do sleep, I sleep well. I was just thinking half 10 to half four. Like that's not even eight hours. How many miles do you cycle or kilometers do you cycle every day? I, I usually, about five days a week I'm on the bike. But I cycle every day in the post. So yeah. I'm getting two hours cycling every day in the post, whether I'm out cycling, whether it's rain, sleet, snow, frost, you name it, I'm out. So, but I also I also walk. My route has about two hours of cycling, and it has about three hours of walking. But I walk on average about fifteen to seventeen k a day as well with the post. So I like I'm getting fitness, whether I like. Now, come here. It's not it's not power walking or anything like that. It's just it's just walking. But I, I've I've put trackers on me just to see what I'm doing, and uh, yeah. And how how many times do you stop to have the chats with the people you're delivering the post to? I mean, we talk about um, 15, 20K of walking. Um, how long does that take you when you're doing all the chatting? Or maybe during COVID, you can't do much chatting now. Well, uh, there's a famous saying, don't hear from me. They say I'm faster than email, so I don't get a chance to talk to them. I'm gone before they come out. <laughs> That's what they say anyway. I don't know. I want to hear what they say. The post job is a very sociable job in that you, you meet a lot of people uh, and you meet all walks, like all nationalities, like when I get up from Westport, like I, I'd say, I'd say ten times a day, I'm asked where this, that, and the other is, or how do you get to some place, and then you have to chat and say, well, did you go to this place? Did you try that? And where are you coming from? So you know, I'm all the time at that slobbering as well. You're like a real tour guide. You're like Rachel Nolan. Oh, tour guide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too much, too much information, and too much. I, I know. And speaking of Rachel Nolan and speaking of crazy challenges, I'm going to jump straight into the Everesting challenge, which was your most recent crazy adventure that you did. And we'll go back across some of the other bits and pieces in a minute. But talk to me about the Everesting challenge, because you decided to do this off the side of Croke Patrick. You gave yourselves less than a day to do it. And um, you climbed a phenomenal amount of meters to hit the Everesting challenge off the side of the mountain called Schelp, is it? Skelp, yeah, we were calling it Ab to Skelp uh, by the time we were finished. But uh, basically, Skelp was an old path. It's, 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 I won't say old path. It's the Western Way. It's part of the Western Way coming from Lenon. Uh, and it goes over the ridge of Colpatrick. And uh, there's a section on that we use. It's uh, 700 metres. The Skelp itself is, is over a kilometre long. And we decided we were going to go for what's called a soil, Irvison. 
So a soil investment had to be done on either, obviously, no pavement whatsoever, no concrete, no tarmacadum. It had to be either gravel or clay or whatever, but it it could not have any uh, pavement. Uh, And the whole idea of that is last last year we did a a virtual harvesting on Swift, and that was that was that was a fair challenge. But this one we just decided. I always felt I like to do a road harvesting, but Ron McLaughlin blew us out of the water with his two or three world record uh, attempts or not attempts uh, that he has. So that kind of took the good out of that. But then we we did a bit of looking around and we couldn't see nobody that did any soil harvesting. There was a few other on the Hells 500 websites. They uh, they have different kind of badges. So if you do it on a on a, a section of iconic trail, so the Western Way would be an iconic trail. That got a badge. If you were the first time to ever do it on on an off road path, that got a badge. Then if you did it on a short one, a short climb, so the max amount of kilometers you you, you can accumulate is two hundred kilometers. Uh, so we broke that one. And then we did it obviously uh, uh, on soil, so it was a gravel path. So we got that as well. So we got a lot of little badges out of our Everson. And that all that all stemmed from COVID. Basically, we used to use scalp from my house to the top. Uh, I'll accumulate over 300 meters of climbing. So I have a little route there that we, re- we used to use. So in a, in a 90 minute cycle, you could get nearly 1,000 meters of climbing and not be on the same track, which is nuts. Uh, that's between going down into the only balls and coming back up. And it was all off-road. So for 90 minutes, that was the best, that's the best bang for book train station I can do around here. From that, then I said, Jesus, wonder could you do an Everson on it? That's that's where it all stemmed from. So Brian Hyland was the other was the, the other man behind it. And then we had to rope in. We threw it out to a load of people in fairness. It went from 40 down to 10 very fast, and then it went down to five at the end. It was only five of us that uh, took it on. So it was a bit of a nuts challenge, but it was, it was epic in that, like on the train sessions, we'd be out there. I think the only thing we seen one day was a sheep for the whole, we were out there for nine hours. Now one person passed us. Now it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a wet evening or anything like that. It was just a standard day, but we only met one person, or one, uh, one sheep for the whole day. And uh, whereas on the day we did it, like there was, there was hundreds out there. People were just coming out to find out where Skelp was. Up there were drones and cameras. Jeez, the footage that came off it was unbelievable. So it was cool. It was a really cool thing to do. So five of you started. Did five of you finish? Unfortunately not, no. Um, Brian, I suppose Brian paid the price for early. He went a little bit hard early on and uh, felt good. And it caught up with him later on. He ended up dehydrating himself and... He literally he ran out of ran out of gas and it was actually the doctor had to pull him at the end. He didn't want to stop. But he had only 600 meters to go. That's all he'd left. Uh, so basically it was, it was about eight climbs is all he had to do. To get the 8,848 meters, which is the height, that is the height, isn't it? The 8848. Yeah. How many um ups and downs did you have to do on that trail to get the to get the challenge done? I, I ended up doing 106 uh climbs. And that got me just over nine nine thousand meters. Uh, they're always recommended to do one or two extra climbs just in case your Garmin or your how health measured it. Health five hundred. They're the governing body of this Everson. They measure it off off your Strava file. So even though my my Wahoo Rome it gave me job, I took a time from when it when it passed the eight thousand eight hundred and forty eight meters. I had to be certain, so we did a couple. I did actually an extra three climbs just to get over nine, just to get over nine thousand, and just to be hundred percent sure. Like, can you, you know, spend that little length of time out on that that hill and to find out then that you were short? It would drive you nuts. So, yeah, we ended up doing a few extra climbs. We all did. We all did extra climbs. Everyone was did extra climbs. And what was your final finishing time? I was just under sixteen hours, fifteen hours, fifty five minutes. Uh, now we didn't go out to do a set of record time and we did take our time at the no we didn't take long breaks Rich Nolan was right on my heels so I didn't want a lady pass me out sorry Rachel <laughs> she was second across the line from what I remember on the she day second, yeah she pushed me right to the wire she uh, now Rachel is more used to doing the real ultra stuff yeah she's strong and she, she had a very good strategy 
Yeah, we're keeping an eye on her all day. But uh, it was a good old battle between us. Like, it was, it was never, it was, it wasn't uh, intentional. It's just the way it worked out. And uh, she wanted to know where I was. I wanted to know where she was. But it kept both of us, kept both of us in tune. And um, we were trying to as well. We were also trying to get finished before it got pitch black. And unfortunately, no, uh, we, you know, it was dark when we were finishing. And just to give you an idea of, it was taking us maybe somewhere between six and a half up to nine minutes to climb it we're, we, we started off at six and a half minute pace and by the end of it we're at nine minute pace climbing but we're always coming down in under 50 seconds we're coming down at 60 k an hour so uh, i know a lot of people were frightened towards the end because they, they felt we were going too fast for the amount of time we're out but we're on good machines we're all good bike handlers but that's the kind of speed we're coming down at it was nuts that's good crazy. Trip. Yeah. I yeah, imagine the adre- the adrenaline was absolutely flying. Yeah, because you have to have your... I, I, that's what I found, yeah. The, it was that buzz. Because when you're on your gravel, your back wheel was always... And it wasn't straight down. It wasn't like coming down off Mamor. This was... There was five corners on it. Now, there weren't 90-degree corners, but there were corners. You were blind. You couldn't see around. So uh, we were coming down at big speed, yeah. It was a really good buzz. I, well, I, that's what we were treated as. I think when I spoke to Rachel after it, she said it was just like a moving bike buffet. She just kept eating the whole day. So aside from the training that you would have done for the attempt, Park, how important was your nutrition and getting that right on the day? You mentioned poor Brian Highland not making it to the finish because of maybe overexerting himself or maybe getting dehydrated. But when you're taking on, no more than when you're taking on the likes of an Ironman or a marathon or an ultra event, Nutrition and fueling is so important. Oh, huge, yeah, huge. Like the plan was every single time to, I had a small bottle, not a full bottle, no, but I was drinking out of that the, on the turnaround section. It was a little bit, uh, it wasn't too steep. So it was the only place really we could have a drink. You couldn't have a drink coming down because obviously the speeds we were doing that and we were doing that on gravel. So it was, you know, it was just impossible. You had to have your, you had to have two hands in the bar. So we were drinking and I also had a little snack. I used to have a snack there as well. And all we're doing was bites, little bits all the time. And uh, my own strategy was we, we worked off 1,500 meters first, knocked that out. And then after that, I went to uh, kind of 600 meter stops. So I did 600 meters of elevation, which was working out about eight climbs. Then I'd stop. I'd stop for maybe seven, eight minutes, uh, cups of tea, uh, different types of types of drinks uh lots of baby potatoes that was my big thing baby potatoes but i had it's funny i had such an array of stuff i have an awful funny uh how would you say it my my palate is when you're doing those i always found my your palate changes like uh someone came out with uh lovely chicken tenders and i had them later on at around 12 hours in and i'm not messing they were they were like caviar they were just beautiful so I yammed them back. But I, I'm lucky. I can eat quite, I can nearly eat anthem, but I have to have an arranged. So I had an awful range of stuff from nougat bars to, to little muffins. As I said earlier on, the, the garlic potatoes are baby potatoes dressed in garlic and uh, garlic butter and salt. They were, we, I ate a lot of those. Had little slices of ham, uh, tiny little bread rolls. Literally, uh, you know, an awful array of stuff now, I'll be honest. A bike buffet. A bike buffet, yeah. And I know that like, you might say, well, that wouldn't be practical for an Ironman. For us, we we, we had a full-on job. Mary and Noel Brady did a monster job at around what I called the transitional area. We had stretching mats. We had, they, were, they were helping us, to, they were rubbing us out. Like there was always hot stuff available if we wanted hot stuff. So if someone came in and said, I wanted a sandwich that was available. If you wanted a baby potatoes, that was available. If you wanted to stretch out, that was available. So they they ran that all day for like they had a, they had a horrendous job. Uh, and keeping tabs in us as well and making sure at the, at the pits area or the, the transition area, say there was Park McLaughlin. Every time we came in with the bike, he'd bring the bike over, clean the chain, check the brake pads, check the tires, make sure that we're losing no air. It, it was just like Formula One. Uh, we'd go in, we'd eat. Uh, most times we'd stretch for a, for a minute or two. He, he'd give it, he'd give us the nods up. The bike is ready, go again. And he was doing that for the five of us. 
Noel, Porrick and Mary. They did that. There was loads of others that came in as well. Uh, there was Ruth Highland, there was Ita Malahi, there was Hillary, Hillary Hughes, there was Dr. Rinton. Like there were so many people there. They were all willing to give us a to give us some form of a hand. And we all needed it. Like there was it was a it was a big team effort. It's class. Has anyone decided that they're going to try and um do it again themselves now after what you guys have done that you've paved the way on Schelp to do it. So there might be another five riders that'll decide to saddle up on a gravel bike and off they go. It's, it's hard to know. Uh, I would hope so. I hope, I'd hope, I hope someone would have a go at it. Like, I suppose to put it into context, we did, a, I suppose 10 years ago, we did the anniversary, actually it was last Friday, we did the anniversary of climbing Crow Patrick 12 times in 24 hours. And uh, I would have thought Loads of people have had to go at that record, but no one ever did. And uh, last last uh, last Friday, we met up and we did a, a kind of an, an alternative climb of Crow Patrick. We went up from the uh, the Le Canvey side, came across the ridges, came down Crow Patrick, and we actually did a, a retake of the photos, the one that uh, that's uh, kind of us on the last climb before we came down. And then we took another one outside of Campbell's uh, bar with uh, a different owner. Pat Holmes is now the owner at the moment and the proprietor. So we, same order, same people, 10 years later. So it's kind of, that that, that was unique. And I, I would have thought loads of them done it in between, but they didn't. So with the same thing with the uh, with the Everson, I would I would hope loads would do it, but who knows? You need you need a group, you see. I, I've, that's the way I, I love, that's, that's what I love about cycling. I'm not really a great individual for doing stuff on my own. I don't get any buzz out of it. Uh, and I have done a few records myself, but uh, I found there was no real buzz. My buzz is, you see how far you can push other people. And sometimes people crack, and that's part of it. Even our spin back today, like there was an awful helter-skelter back from, um, it started in Gort, and it didn't finish until we got to Westport. But obviously, we didn't all come in together. It was just the way it is. But we regrouped after we, we met inside in town. We had the banter. But you, you always want to see who's going to crack. Uh, and that just so happens to be uh, what I love about our little bits and pieces of fun. Training for that Everest challenge. What sort of training did you have to put in? And how did the experience differ between what you did on Zwift versus the real life stuff? Oh, the world's part. Like on Swift, you climbed up to Swift. You, you can freewheel down, so you didn't actually have to be on the bike. The bike just went, went down itself. Like that wasn't the case in the real thing. The one thing I found with Swift is, you know, your body can, it's very. When you get out of the saddle, your bike doesn't sway from side to side. Whereas when you're on, say, when you're doing the real thing, your bike can sway from side to side. So you, you get definitely a bit of relief that way. But it's it's way harder on on your on your system. So wasn't my legs that gave me problems doing the uh, the everything it was my shoulders and my arms like the constant pull my i felt like my shoulders were going to pop and even for the the, the even since like i was getting rub outs on the shoulders they're just, they're just, it was just from that sustained position for so long on a swift you get a break every time you climb you get a break uh for 10 months and you can stop and stretch out and the whole lot but every time you do the the, the real everson like we had no break. We had to be more switched on coming down the descent than we had to be going up. Going up, you just had to pedal. But coming back down at the speeds we were doing, you know, you're on your brakes or you're feathering your brakes. You didn't really want to be on your brakes. You had to be constantly watching. Would a person walk up in front of you? There were so many people there. We we That kind of caught us on the hop. And people were walking over and back. And you know, So we, we had to keep an eye on that all day. So it was definitely a different type of challenge. I found it mentally... I was mentally drained after the the, the soil or the, the everything we did there lately. Whereas the one that we did on Swift, the next day I could have gone for a spin, no hassle. Uh, and I didn't even, I think by the end, I, I actually raced a few days after. Uh, whereas I couldn't do that with the one we did there lately. No way. Different, different scene. And did you ever want to give up when you were on the soil challenge? Or was the threat of Rachel coming up behind you enough to spur you on? Oh, the threat of Rachel. Jesus, she passed me. It would have been, I'd never heard the end of it. I'd never heard the end of it anyway, but I'd never heard the end of it if she passed me. And she'd have made sure of that. And I knew she though she had the work done. She she took it very serious. And we we, we took it quite serious. We like we had a few benchmarks. We our our first training day was 3,000 meters on on scalp. 
And then we had set about three different dates for to do 5,000 meters, but we actually never got to do 5,000 meters on, on uh, Schelp. But we were lucky, we did a lot of training on the, because we were putting the Ultra, the Mayo Ultra together, I had to make sure that that route was 100% as per the way we designed it. So we actually cycled all that route over a few days. So that was a big part of our training. And then we'd have to go over, I might re rechange sections. So I'd have to go back out again, recycle it. Uh, we also put in literally every hill we could find in Mayo in the Ultra. So that all that climbing really helped the earth. So the two of them actually helped each other. Uh, Rachel was part of that little quartet as well. She was going out checking the route for us, giving her her insight into what she felt an ultra needs to include. So both of them really worked well together. So this is the wild Mayo Ultra in um, in two weeks' time. So it'll be a week's time from when the show is is live. I did cycle part of it out around Furness and Newport, and I can tell you that you did find some queer hills and strange roads, but it's absolutely <laughs> breathtaking. Um, you know, I won't be around to, to do it this year, but I definitely would look at doing it um, in the future because it looks absolutely amazing. We're basically using the full coastline of Mayo, and we're also using all the border along the south and east of Mayo. And uh, we hit every iconic, say, tourist spot that Mayo has to offer. And so we're looking Mayo down a year of pulling in on that. They see what we're trying to do. And uh, I think it's going to be a really unusual event going ahead. Going ahead. I know they, there is a few other ultras around, around the country, but uh, I, I just feel we have... Mayo, Mayo is always an unusual place to cycle. I've cycled in Donegal and Kerry and all the rest of it. But I don't know, between the roads and the winds... And I think the roads are a little bit quieter. We've definitely quieter roads on, on the extremes as, a, as along the coast roads and the likes of East Mayo there. That's, that, to, to me, that was completely untouched, but it's, it's really good cycling country. And uh, we've quite had navigation into it as well. So uh, it's going to stress the old teams a little bit, the support staff. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be on, their, they'll be on, their, on their lookout to get everything right. You don't make things easy for it. No, well, I suppose it's it's part of what I do. Like, like if you want to if you want to do these good things right, you have to like I see what what the likes of Ram was uh, the race across America, and that was far from easy. Uh, and now I didn't get to ride it, but I was doing support for the the Navin team back in uh, two thousand and eight, and that opened my whole world to what ultra was like. That's three thousand and fifty miles into John, nearly five thousand k. Like that's. That's what's real ultra. So really 650Ks or the 300Ks in Mayo, in theory, shouldn't be too hard. But what I want the people to do, if you are the participants that are signing up for these events, uh, both Brian and myself, we, we put this together and we want them to, to have an experience, not just a race, but to have an experience and say, wow, I didn't realize that was there. I never cycled that road. Uh, why wasn't that hill ever mentioned to me before? Like that's what we've done with the ultra. We have uh, we've taken what we've known and our experiences of Mayo, and we've put it into an event. That's that's basically what we have done. And will you ever get to race it yourself? Do you think? Uh, no, well, not in this current format. No, it'd be very awkward. I don't think you'd be able to do it. But uh, I, I like to I, I like I, I love to go up and do the likes of Donegal or get involved back again with the race around Ireland with Alan Heary's race around Ireland. I get, I get, I get my buzz out of that. Like I've cycled all the routes, so I know, I know literally every, every nook, nook and cranny in the whole course. So I'm happy with that. You mentioned Alan Heary there, and there is the um, the 24 hour race in in Mondello Park that's taking place in October as well. So there are quite a few ultra races now, which I suppose is kind of indicative of the interest that people have to step from step up maybe from being a leisure cyclist or a racer cyclist to look for something different. I know there's a couple of the lads here in Galway are doing your race. They decided not to go long and triathlon on this year, but to actually challenge themselves with the Mayo uh, Ultra. But there, there definitely seems to be a growth in that sport. And it's a very different type of racing to the bunch racing. I personally much prefer the long endurance stuff than the, the bunch racing. Of course, I'm just scared of all the riders around me. Whereas when you're in an endurance spin, you're pretty much on your own and you're relying on the support crew with you or if it's unsupported race, which I haven't tried yet. Um, but there has been a big growth in ultra racing in, in recent years. 
Yeah, well, if you look at it, if you look at it, say worldwide in America or Europe, they're huge, they're monsters. Like they have all these massive ultra ultra events, and they get more publicity as well because obviously social media helps to highlight them. Uh, in Ireland, if you look at the running, running has been huge the last number of years. Yourself with Ironman, though you brought Ironman Galway, you had Ironman down in Cork. Like that's being, you know, they're all. Fair enough, there is a few athletes that will break the 10 hours, but generally most people are over the 10 hours. So that's an ultra as well. Most of the events are over the 10 hours or go on to 24 hours. And people are looking for that extra little bit of challenge. So can they do it? And, uh, you know, yourself, if, you want to, if you want to put yourself into that, that game, it means you have to do a bit of work and you have to do a bit of training. You're not, you're not going to jump in from five weeks out and just say, I'm going to do an ultra. You're going to have your homework done beforehand. And uh, it means you want to have to have at least a 200k spin done on your own. And you have to know your body fairly well. We're appealing to, I would call it, say, the more, I won't say the more mature athlete, because the guy that won in uh, the Donegal 555, young Conor Galler, like he was only, what, 22? He's a young fellow. But we're appealing to that type of athlete, Joe. We're looking for them to go out and explore themselves. And uh, I think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for a little bit of adventure. They're looking for, definitely a challenge something that's not just a little tick box they're looking for a real challenge and um that's what i think that's what ultra is going to do yeah and i think as well you know while we're recording this the transatlantic way ultra is on is underway at the moment um from Derry to cork unsupported that's a the race that uh, rachel nolan won last year i mean that's a completely different ball game to having a supported race with with the crew behind it park you mentioned there about knowing your body and knowing you know how to manage yourself for for racing i suppose really but you had a bit of a health scare yourself back in 2014 that saw you curb your enthusiasm a little bit for some of the high intensity stuff but yet you're still forging ahead with as you call it yourself the slobbering with the local races or some of the long endurance stuff but can you tell us a little bit about what happened you in 2014 and how you've managed to come out the other side of it yeah i suppose it, it happened after a local time trial i mean a local club league time trial uh, i basically got what's called a, a scad uh, it's a, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection exceptionally rare wasn't they weren't quite sure what really caused it but basically they said i pushed i pushed too hard and that that was the explanation that was given at the time so at the time i literally got a heart check uh got um i got a blockage my my inner wall of the artery tore caused a blockage caused a small uh a small little heart attack uh i was lucky i was diagnosed i was I felt unwell very early on that day, and uh, I came in. I came out in a real heavy sweat. I mean, uh, more than a normal sweat, and uh, ended up being brought into a doctor surgery. I never left the doctor surgery. I left it in an ambulance. Uh, they said I was ex- exceptionally lucky to be alive. Uh, that generally, if you get a block like that, if it doesn't open straight away, your heart has been starved, starved with blood, and just bye bye. But uh, lucky enough, the doctor recognised I have a problem. I was rushed to Casenbar, and Casenbar just said this is a bigger problem that they couldn't sort out. So I was brought up to the Galway Clinic, and uh, that's where I got diagnosed with the uh, the scad. And uh, they had to to fix the artery. Basically, the artery had collapsed, and to fix it, they had to put a stint in to keep the artery open. For the next the six months after, I was on literally very light duties, and for about the three years after I never really felt properly a hundred percent and I suppose it gave me a lot of thinking time because straight away all of the competitive stuff that all stopped all my training stopped uh there was no such thing as training for quite a while after and it was a lot of I was going from doctor to consultant to more doctors to different tests and they they couldn't really explain so I went down the alternative route in the end, and uh, at the time that I had my my uh, my problem, I, I that particular year I never felt I had what I would call decent form. I always felt off, like guys that I would normally I want I don't I don't like using the word beast or whatever, but guys that I would definitely perform better against were were hammering me, 
And I was seen to be all the time pushed against the tide, against Joe Low morale. Uh, but looking back at it, I always had these kind of, uh, they weren't proper cold sores. They were kind of like, it was like cuts on my face. And they kept coming up. They nearly go in and it, you, you, you think you're on top and the next minute they'll be back again. If you pushed anyway hard, they come back. So basically after, after going down the alternative route, which was actually three years after, they more or less said I had parasites in my system and uh, that went basically the parasites kind of the hide in the, the places where blood doesn't get at it where normal medicine won't have to, to, to cure it. So I was on all sorts of concoctions for about six months, uh, different types of concoctions. But I, I felt it. I felt it straight away. Well, once the, the game of the concoction was clearing the parasites uh, and had that out of my system, I knew, I knew nearly instantaneously my body's back. It's, I've, my, I've strength back. Uh, and then it was a case of maintenance after that uh, and really looking in it. So I was taking nicene, I was taking vitamins, proper vitamin C, not vitamin C, you just buy out of a jaw, out of a jaw, those, I call them sweets, not that kind of vitamin C, proper vitamin C. I was taking a lot of oils, you know, from cod liver oil to loads of olive oils, uh, flaxseed oil, that kind of stuff, took loads of that. And uh, I had to look at my nutrition quite a bit. I lacked differently. I wasn't feeding my body. Even though I was feeding it good food, it was lacking nutrients. And hence, that's why I was coming out with these little breakouts. And it obviously, let the, let the parasites thrive. So uh, I went back to I went back to normal medicine and tried to clear this out with them. And they, they didn't seem to want to. They said, no, not really that. But uh, the bottom line is I went back and said, right, enough sulking, enough sitting around and because it, it was like people might might think said oh he, he's coped with that well but I remember at the time like I was myself so if I could like, you couldn't cycle it I couldn't cycle it over my mates like oh I, I went I went from like from being very popular cycling to to be a nobody you, you you were gone I was out of I wasn't involved with committees and no one wanted to know which I was a little bit disappointed if you look back on it People just left you. So out of sight, out of mind. You're a nobody. So you went from being getting results, being in everybody's you know, best mate, to gone. So after a few weeks from day from day, uh, he's recovering away with him alone. And after then you're being left alone and then no one never no one talked to you. Uh, so I look back on that that time and it says, Wow, Jesus. So that that's what that's what happens. Then. You can see you can see what happens to, to top sports people when they go from job, you know, they go out and they, they they finish their careers and they retire from sport. If they don't have another me- medium, as in you know, to be kept involved in the sport, you can see, very easily see why they can go down the depression road. But I look back and I, I think it was I'm stronger for it. Um, I did a, a lot of reading, a lot of research. I was determined to make myself better and stronger and come back. Not come back to racing. I wasn't never worried about coming back to racing. I always felt, job. Oh, you can race week in, week out. I wanted to do different stuff and try try new things. So, but little by little, I, I'm back pushing a little bit and doing what I want rather than what somebody said, well, that's this race program is on. I just I got back to doing what I wanted. And I think that's... Uh, yeah, that's important. It must have been very difficult to come back, Park, and to try and, you know, find your place again, because I can imagine that when the cycling is pulled from underneath you and you have such a scare with, with your life, because it is your life flashing in front of you, it must have been awful hard to just put yourself out there again and to come back. Um, yeah. I suppose it was. I, I, it was. It was happening kind of, um, I suppose it, it kind of happened. It wasn't directly, I, I was happening unawares to myself. Um, I'd sign up and I'd do it. Uh, I'd bring a group out to New York or somewhere like that and you end up doing a hill. And you said, geez, yeah, I'm getting away with this. So bit by bit, your confidence came back. Uh, but like my confidence would, would have been on the floor. After that happened, I, I didn't feel... I should be pushing myself. Like we did a trip two years afterwards. I never forget as long as I live. 
I decided to do from uh, Brits to Perpignan, bringing being you know, self self sufficient. So we brought our saddlebags, but like on the first time we went up uh, the Col de Marie Blanc, I couldn't stay with the lads. I I kept to a really low heart rate. I I thumping pain in my chest, and yeah, it was a. <laughs> A liberating experience uh, to try and get every day done and saying, geez, when are when when you going to are you going to keel over at any time? Like, and I remember Mary, my missus, she was, she says, you're, you know, what about your kid and what about us? And like, what he asked? Yeah, when nuts. you, yeah, it's nuts. But also the side of it, Park, as well, that you identify so much with cycling and cycling is so much part of your life. I mean, we spoke about that earlier about your daily routine and there's so much of your life involved in cycling now that to to lose that in, in the heat of of one thing that happened, which had a huge repercussion to your to your body, to your whole life. A lot of people wouldn't recover from that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I suppose I don't I don't look at it. I never dwelled on it. I just says I just felt I had to get back myself, my own mojo, so the um, doing all the volunteer work and all that. That's kind of just part and parcel of so things I wouldn't be happy that I've seen going on within the within the sport. And I said, right, get involved for a couple of years, so get these little bits and pieces done. Uh, my own cycling, like my wee fella is cycling now, my partner Mary cycles. It's important that we go out, we get out of it. And it's very easy, I suppose, looking back on it, you could, it would have been very easy to you know, stick your head in the sand, you know, get fond of a bottle and start drinking or do, do, do something different. As regards just getting away from the sport, I, I didn't feel that was my the way to do it. I, I suppose, <coughs> looking back, I says no. I'm, not, I'm doing this on my terms. Like, no one will tell me. <laughs> I suppose I kind of said no one will tell me what to do, and that's just my mindset. And and well, I can tell you, cycling is the better for it anyway, Porik, With all the stuff that you've done in in recent years, and I I don't know you that long, but I I definitely admire the amount of of work and effort. And you're almost like the unsung hero for cycling in Ireland for all the stuff that you've done um throughout the years. I know I, I mentioned there about Western Lake CC and and the work you're doing with with Connacht Cycling, and and there's plenty of other bits you're doing as well. And even that Everesting Challenge. I mean, I remember chatting to you about it before. You did it and you wanted more youth riders to take up gravel biking and to have more youth riders involved in the in not just in racing, but in other forms of cycling. So you're being an ambassador for the sport of cycling and an inspiration for adults and youths across the board with with what you're doing. And I think that's that's a huge legacy to have. And I think we're very lucky that those of us who are involved in cycling are involved in the sport in whatever level are, are very lucky to, to have you on board as well. I know, I suppose, if you look back on it, like, there has been a lot of friends that give up their, you know, even though because I'm passionate, they've given up their time as well to help. And um, that's why I felt you know, that's important. You know, that we, that it's very easy for one person to keep doing all the work, but you need to pull in other people. And I, I, I always feel that that's important. And lucky enough, quite a lot of people have come along and put their shoulders to the to the wheel and they've you know, they've done some great work as well like even I see there that that you know the kind of committee that's there like they're completely I won't say new to volunteering but they're new to their roles and they've learned so much and they're putting on ladies training camps putting on bringing down the likes of Killian Callahan for the youths like that's Jerry Mooney and Gary Collins and Brian Holland they're looking after the treasures role making sure we get more members like so, so many people are driving it on from Porik Quinn. Like when you look at that, and you know, they all, they all have a passion. Like and I, I know I mentioned a few names. That's only a handful of names of that committee. There's thirteen on it. It's huge. So it's um, and it's great to see that. Like that give, that gives you, you know, you're going down the right road. Then when you see those people coming in, so that that's important. Absolutely. A couple of questions before I finish up, Park. I want to look at parents who are listening in who have young kids who are interested in cycling you know what's the best way to get them involved I know you mentioned earlier that you felt that there was a huge emphasis on road racing for the younger cyclists when they came through years ago and that that may have been a mistake but that we should have them doing everything from stunt riding to BMX to gravel to mountain you know is is that the advice that you would still stand by that just get them out cycling and get them enjoying the sport for what it is, as opposed to too much of a focus on hard racing or, or excelling in any one area. 
Oh, for definite, yeah. Like you sport, like the sport of cycling is 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 a lifetime activity. Like it's a life, lifelong, should I say, activity. Like I look at my original mentor, uh, Sean Stagg. He took up cycling at the ages of at the age of fifty. He's now eighty six, and he's still on the road two and three times a week, which is nuts. John Ferguson is another man. He's been involved in cycling even longer, and he's in his early eighties as well. And uh, when you see those guys, like that's that's a lifelong activity like that what the very few sports they can they can offer you that and if we're looking to you know to curb the whole obesity like we have to have kids active and like cycling offers that opportunity to go out and explore there's new greenways job you know, built even there to, i couldn't believe it from we were cycling down along lock there from scarif to um Killaloo, there's a greenway there. Now, it's not it's not very well maintained, but that's going to get more more use. There's a new greenway in Limerick. There's another one looking to be penciled in from uh, Sligo downwards. Uh, there's another one going from uh, Mount Cross out. Like that offers people the opportunity to to cycle uh, and cycle on away from traffic. Uh, I, I will admit, and I've seen it firsthand myself, the roads are not a place for kids to be to be cycling on at the moment uh i don't know we we were stopped at the side of the road a fellow was on the phone he was obviously texting he didn't see and like the fellow an old lady that was cycling with me he missed him at the last second he pulled out he was going in towards the ditch and we were stopped i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe it in my eyes i could see clearly he wasn't looking at the road he was on the phone and this is what we're dealing with it's, it's a it's a it's just horrendous but uh Getting away from that, that's the negative side. The positive side is there's loads more greenways. There's definitely parks. There's, you, know, you can go mountain biking literally in all the culture forests. There is the likes of Kalani and Daraura, Balahura, Kyle Brack. These, these areas are you know, ready-made uh, mountain bike centers and uh, taking the greenways, taking the parks. Like it's, it's, there's still loads of possibilities for cycling out there. And it's a brilliant activity for kids because I think if we're going to teach motorists about cyclists, we have to teach the kids how to cycle. They're going to realize them when they become motorists. Right, well, I have to give that guy or that girl a bit of extra room. If I pass them out or pass them out at 80k an hour, the wind of my vehicle is going to blow them in. Motorists don't seem to have that idea now. And I blame that on the Celtic Tiger, believe it or not, from 2003 to 20 whenever whenever the whole thing went belly up that generation did no cycling or very little cycling hence they have no appreciation for uh for cyclists on the road maybe i'm wrong but that's what i feel i think that needs to be that needs to be addressed and in terms of your own sporting highlights what would you say is the standout achievement that you've had as an as an athlete over the years number one is probably get my gale force win in uh, 2010, um, I was so close so many times, which just I was unlucky two years with punchers and other other times in just I won't call it just probably bad tactics. But in in 2010, I I, I broke the duck, and uh, I was ha- I was really happy with that. And in 2011, then I won the uh, the adventure race series for the country, uh, and that was another because that, that means I had to go to courses where I didn't really know like from north, south, east and west. And uh, that was another highlight winning, winning, winning that one as well. I suppose the out and out, you know, from a performance point of view, uh, my mizzen head to fair head is the two, you know, it's the two furthest parts in the country that you can cycle in one, one line. Like I went out to break that record back in 2006 with a limited amount of knowledge and training and ended up breaking it, breaking it as well. And that still stands to this day. So, um, like looking back on it from a performance point of view, I hit that one on the on the nose, and I had great support there from the the guys who backed me up that time. So, uh, yeah, that's my best one. But um, kind of do, uh, there's all sorts of things going on there. Even just some of the swims we did, we did some mad swims as well. Swimming across that mask, that was. Uh, that was definitely uh, something unique. No one had done it before, so we decided to do it. I suppose the 12 climbs in uh, 24 hours, that was madness, pure mad. We look back at it. And then the Everston, that was more madness. So there's, there's all sorts of stuff. 
And I mean, the stuff you've mentioned just there, we didn't even get to touch on it uh, in the show at all. And we're already gone over an hour of talking. And I have one final question for you. And then I'm going to let you go have your dinner because I know you're tired and hungry after that um, two day trip to Killaloo. Who or what have been the biggest inspirations to you in your life? Um, who or what? Sean Kelly for definite. Um, yeah, I was in awe of him from a, a very young age. And then we got to stay in his house in the, the winter of 1995. And then he'd become up to the Mayo for the Mayo weekend. So he's been a, he would, he would somebody I would, would aspire to from his, from his mental aspect of super tough. Like he was, he was retired and he was still super tough on himself. Four years after he retired, he was still super tough on himself and super tough on us and made us, job punished us. But he was trying to get the best out of us. So I, I definitely admire him. Um, a good friend of mine and a mentor would have been Paddy Dorn, who passed away there uh, last week. So he would have been another one. I suppose my parents, looking back, they let me off off the, off the leash. So when I was a young fellow, I would have been quite, quite wild and did a lot of, I suppose, a lot of unusual stuff. So being let off the leash was, was important. And I suppose my partner, Mary, we've done loads of stuff together. And uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and for sharing some wonderful stories and some insights into your sporting life and your sporting journey. You definitely are an unsung hero and you are the flying postman. I know you hate me calling it that, but you are the flying postman. Thanks very much, Joanne. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our new website on www.trytalkingsport.com. We'd love to know what you think of it. I'd also love to connect on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by and say hi. Let me know what you think of the show. And if you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Until next time, stay safe, keep smiling and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day.